Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hello and welcome to another edition of Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We're a podcast going beyond the bats to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and also talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. Glad to have you along. I'm your co-host, Bert Hinson, and we're covering a topic in this episode that's really been on our radar for quite some time, and that is the impact a career in law enforcement has on family members, spouses, children, mothers, fathers. I think it's going to be an interesting discussion. As a matter of fact, over the next two episodes, we're going to examine the various dynamics that are involved in working to maintain a healthy balance between the times when you're in uniform and those moments when you're not on call, when you're just a parent or a spouse. And today we've got two guests lined up, a father and a daughter. They're going to help navigate that topic in this episode. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But first, we welcome in our host. He is a 23-year veteran of the Novi Police Department and an all-around good guy. He is your host, Mr. Michael Warren. How are you, sir? Buddy, I am doing great, and I'm excited about today, and I want to get that out front. I'm excited about learning about policing in Pennsylvania, and the reason why I'm interested in that is my college roommate was from Lansdale, Pennsylvania, and so I've been to his house. In fact, for his wedding gift, when he when he got married, my gift to them was I drove their U-Haul truck from Gulfport, Mississippi to Lansdale, Pennsylvania. And for our listeners who are geographically challenged, that's a long way. (laughs) And so I'm interested in hearing about what policing is like in the Keystone State. And you'll have some perspective, I think, uh, at least, you know, with your career in law enforcement and maybe the impact that that career has had on your family members, a direct influence as well, right? It, it, you know, I, I think what is often lost is the impact that it has on family members. It's unfortunate, but we talk about the, the law enforcement heroes, but a lot of times the true heroes are the people behind the people wearing the badge. And so yeah. I think it's going to be a good perspective. So why don't you go ahead and tell us about our guests and let's get them out here. Well, as I mentioned earlier, our guests today are father and daughter. He is a 30-year veteran of the Philadelphia Police Department, having retired as a lieutenant in charge of the child abuse section of that department's SVU. She is the host of the podcast Life Lessons with the LT's Daughter, which focuses on examining topics that explore uh, various subjects from those who serve in uniform every day, including the very thing we're going to talk about today, finding that balance between work life and home life. It's our pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Michael Boyle and his daughter, Catherine Boyle. Thank you guys for joining us and being on uh, Between the Lines today. Hello. Hello. Thank you guys for having us. This is so much fun. Uh, Lieutenant, I'm going to start with you. All right. No, good. <laughs> and, and, and so I, I ask a lot of our guests this, and I always is interesting to me. What was it that drew you to a career in law enforcement to begin with? Well, that was not my first choice. <laughs> uh, wait, wait you're, you're not about to tell us that you wanted to be a hose jockey, did you? No, no. <laughs> okay, no, okay. No, then whatever, whatever was first choice is good. I'm good with it. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, actually, I have a degree in clinical psychology, and I worked in that field for quite a few years until uh, there about 1979. And then there was a cutback in federal funding. The hospital I was working for wanted to cut my salary. I said, no, just cut me because I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> so I then bartended for a year, and I took the police test basically on a whim. I did well. 
And within a few months, I was in the police academy. And I really thought that I was going to be there that long because I had already applied as a drug salesperson for Merck. And uh, I thought I thought had, I had that job nailed. Well, that didn't work out. And so now, many years later, 40-some years later, eh, I'm a retired 30-year-old veteran, a <laughs> 30-year veteran of the Philadelphia Police Department. Now, that all being said, I, I followed in – the path of my older brothers. My oldest brother became a cop in 1966. And I think he did that for the money and the security and all that and the pension. Uh, my middle brother came back from Vietnam and he joined my older brother, but he's, he's actually, he was retired on a disability with uh, uh, diabetes. So he's been, he's been off the job for quite some time. But anyway, that's, I just kind of followed in line with my two brothers. You brought it up and we've talked about it on this, uh, this show before. A lot of people in policing were willing to forego short-term prosperity for long-term security, the pensions and, and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And it, I don't know what it's like in your state, but in Michigan, one of the things that they started going after after the 2007, 2008 economic downturn were pensions. And so it's like, man, you're, you're wanting to take the short term prosperity and the long term security away. And here we are, you know, 15, 16 years later, and we have a bunch of agencies that are struggling to hire enough people and enough qualified people. Exactly. And, and, and that's that's I think that's a, an epidemic that's affecting everybody, every police agency throughout the country. The fact that the media is really kind of anti-police, generally speaking. There's a lot of anti-police kind of fervor throughout the communities. And there's like a lot of anti-police prosecutors out there. So there's cops are saying, you know, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. It's not worth putting my life on the line. It's not worth it for the hours. It's not worth it for the sacrifice. And if you're not going to pay me well, and if you're not going to reward me for a 20-year career, then screw it. I'll, I'll do something else. And you, you probably were a lot like me. I was willing to put up with a lot of stuff because it benefited my family. But the folks coming in right now, they're not getting that long-term benefit for their family. That's asking for too many sacrifices. I have to agree with that. I mean, the fact is, you know, our health plan in Philadelphia was the best. You know, I recently, I'm I'm of an age now, I'm no longer covered by that. (laughs) And I'm now a a Medicare guy. (laughs) And I find that shocking because uh, there was once upon a time, I just went and showed my, my Blue Cross card with the police department Thing. I was golden. Didn't pay a dime. And I did that for over 30 years because I had extended beyond my retirement age. But now I don't have that anymore. So now I have to join everybody else, the ranks of everyone else. And it's it's a shock. <laughs> Catherine, I'm not going to be rude and ask how old you are. But based upon <laughs> how, how young you look, you probably weren't around when your dad first started in the career. Am I correct? You are correct. So, so, but when you were born, though, he was already into the career. So so for a long period of time, this was all that you knew as far as dad. I mean, dad went and he did his job as a police officer. You didn't know him when he was doing his clinical work. So, so what, what, what's your first memory of your dad when, when you realize, Hey, you know what? My dad's a cop. I don't even, I don't know if I ever had a moment where I really put it together because everything was always so normal. Growing up, I knew that like he had some accessories that we weren't allowed to touch um, and that were, you know, hidden away from us and stuff like that. I don't think I really put it together until there was a year that he was on TV a lot because I think 
His captain didn't like to be interviewed on the news, so he took a lot of the interviews on the news that year. Yeah, especially with the, the sensitive issue of sex crimes and child abuse. Yes. She yeah. was, like, phobic. So I was out there. They threw me out there and said, here, you got it. Yeah, so I think that year when he was on the news a lot being interviewed about these topics and and we got to see him on the news and people in the neighborhood actually recognized him from the news, I think that's kind of when it clicked what what he did. Did that have uh, either did it have a positive or negative effect seeing, you know, if you go to school and your dad's on TV all the time, do the other kids, were they like excited? Like, we saw your dad on TV or was the opposite of that? Um, no, they were excited. I'm I'm older than I look. Um, and I grew up in a time where police were very much looked up to and heroic. And I even remember that year trick-or-treating, we were home and kids were still coming to our house. And we had a neighbor kid come to our house and recognize him from the news. And he made a big deal. He was like, oh, you're that guy from the news. I see you all the time. So it, it was definitely something that kids were excited about. Plus, I think you have to understand that the, the, the area where we lived, there were a lot of civil servants. There were a lot of firefighters. There were a lot of police. There were a lot of just general middle-class civil servants in that area. So, yeah, we didn't have a lot of blowback or negative blowback, I should say. Now, Michael, I know it's hard to tell in this little screen that we have in front of us, but I have a face made for radio. So I wasn't run out in front of the TV cameras a whole lot during my career. But, but you know, it, it's one of those things that, that speaking on behalf of the police department and really you're speaking on behalf of society and trying to talk about the topic of child sexual abuse. That yep. to me, that seems like that would be an incredibly difficult thing to talk about, especially if you have kids of your own. Uh, yeah, it was. There were times that it was I was dancing around, uh, <laughs> dancing around my head because I didn't go in with any any prepared remarks other than some facts. So I, I had to be very careful and 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 circumspect in what I disclosed for a lot of reasons, for legal reasons, ethical reasons, and just for common sense reasons. So it was really kind of you had to satisfy the media and their questions. But at the same time, you had to be almost vanilla without being vanilla. Yes. <laughs> makes sense. Vanilla fudge. <laughs> well, it's funny you should say you say I uh, should say that. So um, on my walk this morning, uh, I'm listening to a book by Colin Powell uh, called It Work For Me. And the topic this morning was talking about how he handled the media. And he said, I always had to remind myself and remind others that the, the reporter's the one asking the questions, but I'm using them to speak to the public. And yeah. I would imagine that that was something that you had to do in your position because of the type crimes. Be because when mm -hmm. something bad happens, we want people to be aware, but we don't want them paranoid. We don't want them thinking that every single person's trying to snatch your kid and, and you know, throw them into sex slavery. Yeah. At the time that I was in that in that period of my career, although I was in charge of the commander of the child abuse unit, I was also the administrative lieutenant for special victims unit. So I had to do all the PR for the rapes, the, the adult issues, the child issues, basically anything they handled. That was me. Now, now we're, we're kind of going chronologically out of order here, but I think it's an important point to, to bring out here. Catherine. Knowing what he was investigating at this time of his career, how did he handle that with you? You know, like I said, we don't want the public to be paranoid, but but it's hard when you're investigating those type things over and over that uh, as a parent, you don't become super protective of your kids. Yeah, it's it's interesting, too, because I mean, I don't know what he did to cope, but 
when we were growing up, we had almost more freedom than a lot of our friends. I'm not sure where that stemmed from, but our parents really, they, they raised us with, with values and gave us a lot of freedom and kind of trusted us to be trustable. And I would say that we were. But your dad didn't chime in right there to, 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 <laughs> to validate that, just throwing that out there. <laughs> I'll say this. There are some news media that broadcast that I didn't want them to see. <laughs> so let's put it that way. There were some of them were really sensitive and ugly. I dressed it up, but they were still ugly. So, Brent, right now, you know, the, the, what's the name of that movie that's uh, really popular right now the, uh, on on human trafficking? Yeah. A, 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 and I can't remember the oh, name. Oh, The Sounds of Freedom, Yeah, right? sound, Sounds of Freedom. Powerful, powerful film. It, it, and that that's where I kind of struggle with. It's almost like national security secrets. You know, the, the American public needs to have an idea kind of what's going on mm-hmm. so that they know government's working. If we expose too much we become a society that is, we don't trust anybody. You know, it's like, yeah. I don't know where that fine line is when it comes to this particular topic here. I don't know. You know, I, I'm, I'm sure you've probably seen some of the videos from the quote Kensington Avenue uh, experience in Philadelphia. Have you seen yes. that? Yeah. That's pretty disgusting stuff. I remember a couple of times we would uh, have a report of a rape of a young woman and we find out that she's from an upper class neighborhood. I'm not from originally from Kensington, but now she's living in Kensington and she's been there for a month. We had a photograph of her trying to find her, but we couldn't, we didn't recognize her. You know why? Because in a month she aged 10 years and that's sad. And that I'm going back now 20 years ago. This was, it wasn't nearly as bad then as it is today. Absolutely. Today it is just, it's, it's catastrophic. Based on the things that I've, I've seen uh, Catherine write about, it sounds like you were able to, put up a shield between your work life of who you were on the job and who you were at home. How did you find a way to balance that? Because a lot of times in the conversations I've had with officers, especially on this podcast or you know, with Ailita, sometimes they had a hard time finding that balance. So how were you able to do that? Well, I think some of the, some of the police officers, male and female, they come into the job at a younger age. I came into the job at 31. I had already experienced quite a few things, including working with special needs people, uh, uh, MHMR patients uh, at, at, at a hospital where I worked. So I, I had quite a few experiences and, you know, and I didn't grow up rich either. Uh, I grew up grounded, very well grounded with my parents. I didn't have that hard of a time separating my work life from my personal life. When I put on the uniform, I was a cop. And I, I have to say this, I was only in uniform as a police officer for five years and a lieutenant for two years. The rest of my 30 years, I was in the detective bureau. And so that, that does give you some insulation. I have to tell you that from the 911 calls and all that, I would, you'd have to speak to that, Mike. I, I'm sure you'd agree. But I was able to compartmentalize. Uh, and, that, and that's critical. You have to do that. You have to leave work at work and go home and stay at home and stay in that zone. It sounds incredibly easy in uh, easy. In, in theory, but it's. It, I have to imagine it just can't be, especially if you, uh, Catherine, I don't know if you can speak to it, but was he able, it's like, you know, a lot of those times people grow up and say, I didn't realize I was poor. It, they were able to, to cover that up. Was that kind of the thing with you, with, with your dad being an officer like this? Was he able to like shield you from that, that life that he had to, to lead at work? Yeah, I would say absolutely. I didn't even think like recognize that this concept of 
police officers being disconnected at home or having trouble sort of compartmentalizing. I didn't even realize that that existed or happened until I got much, much older. Growing up, he was always there. He was always engaged. He he always played with us. We never would have known that the job he did was experienced any kind of trauma or anything. Catherine, I'm going to throw this out here as uh, a guy with a lot of life experience, which Michael's a politically correct way of saying I'm old. <clears throat> but uh, I, I think what, I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to argue with you about that. <laughs> but 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 I, I think one of the things I think is becoming more difficult for a law enforcement professional to be able to have that time where, OK, this is my family time and, and this is work time. And it's because of cell phones. You know, I, I mm-hmm. when I first became a detective, we had these little flip phones, that, that, that were the track phones. And, and, you know, it looked like uh, you know, we were talking about Star Trek before. <laughs> we got on start recording it looked like that little thing and we thought that was it you know we also had pagers then finally got the pager where you could actually see scores from nfl games on there that that instant communication though has really Mm -hmm. blurred the lines between being on duty and being off duty and i think it's becoming increasingly difficult And, and then you add on the staffing shortages that we talked about where there are fewer people that still have to do the job that you were doing I have to think that that probably has a negative impact on those still on the job. I have to agree 1,000% on that. Uh, you know, when I come on, you didn't have a cell phone, you didn't have a pager, and you didn't have a walkie-talkie. Your radio was in your car. You're right. You're older. <laughs> <laughs> I remember. We had walkie-talkies. They may not have been very good, but we had them. Well, we, well, we, had, we had five in our district. Five, and they were only given to the people on the beat. People in the vehicles did not get them. They were the big bricks, you know. I remember one time, uh, and uh, Katie's heard this story before, but it's worth telling. Uh, my partner and I were driving a wagon, uh, an EPW, an emergency patrol wagon, a uh, paddy wagon, and we smelled this awful odor. It smelled like cat pee, which, if you know what that, you know, you know what that is, right? I didn't at the time because I was a little naive. But my partner says, "No, nah, somebody's cooking." All right. So anyway, we traded in our marked vehicle for an unmarked vehicle. And we came across the house. There were a bunch of guys on the porch. Hey, say, guys, you you live there? Yeah. This is three o'clock in the morning. Yeah, we live here. What's the address? Hamana, 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 hamana. So, of course, we go into the house and they're cooking like all kinds of meth in there. But we don't have we don't have a radio for backup. There, There had to be 20 people in the house. And we don't know if they're armed. We don't know any, and all we got is two six shooters between us. So Bill, my partner, said, "Here, he gave me his gun. I put his gun in my left arm. I put my hand, and I put my, my gun in my right hand." And he went out to get backup. That's how primitive it was in 1982. Wow. I have to show my ignorance here. Okay, the, these are the Philadelphia police stories that I know. Okay. I can remember, then that shows you how how the human brain is is weird. I can remember a cops episode from it has to be 30 years ago now. And I just remember they had to go into this this barber shop where there was this large man who was completely naked and, and sweating. And they go in and they start trying to wrestle with this guy. 
And I was thinking to myself, because that, you know, that's back towards when I'm starting my career. I'm thinking, you know what? Uh, maybe this ain't the career for me because I ain't for rolling around on the floor like that. There ain't nothing to hold on to. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, why do people do that? It's like the worst thing. But but then the other thing is that one of my favorite authors is a guy named W.B. Griffin. And he actually, oh, yeah. he actually had a series on the Philadelphia, a fictional series. Yes, and, and so he always, uh, one of the places about uh, the Philadelphia Highway Patrol. And I never understood how a city police department could have a highway patrol, but they, I think they wore like the high boots and stuff like that. They used to call them the boot cops. <laughs> the boot cops. Probably for more than one reason, I'm just guessing. Yeah. I guess that's another question. But why did you choose Philadelphia? I grew up there. So, so you knew it? I knew it. I knew Philadelphia. I knew I knew the neighborhoods. I pretty much knew all the streets. I was familiar with everything, and it was it was my hometown. And it still is. Even though I'm outside now, it still is my hometown because I still work there. Well, I'm going to throw this out here. You grew up there, so you've got no excuse, okay? Just, just seeing how Philadelphia sports fans respond, you would have to know that it's going to cause issues for the police at some point, yet you still chose to do that. In our line of work, that's what we call a clue and perhaps one that should have been paid attention to. <laughs> well, I only had the experience of dealing with a sports celebration. It was at 93 when the Sixers won. I think it was 93 or 83. I'm sorry. And that was that was an unpleasant experience for, for, from a police perspective. It was great for the fans, but eh, not so great uh, for, for a cop. You talk about th that particular experience. And so, Catherine, I'm going to bring it back over to you for a second, uh, mm -hmm. because one of the things I struggled with in the past few years is I, after I retired were when all the riots were going on. And if your mom or your dad is a police officer and you know that night after night after night, they're mm -hmm. going out there and they're being deployed to these front lines for, for these riots. I can't help but think that that would have had a tremendous impact. And, and so, you know, hearing your dad talk, he describes 1983 celebration as an unpleasant experience. OK, well, these weren't celebrations. What's it like for a kid knowing what your parents are going out there to do? Well, during the riots, actually, is kind of why I embarked on this journey to find a way that as a civilian, I can support police officers because during the riots, I, I lived in New York City and I had friends who were participating in the riots. You know, to your point, for me, it was really hard to see the way they were being treated because I only saw them as who they actually were when they went home as as mothers and, and fathers and brothers and sisters. And so the riots were really challenging for me to watch and for me to see people that I once cared about participate in them. And that's how this even got started, that I decided I need to do something to support you know, not only these police officers, but the the families who are also experiencing this. When this kicked off, did you lose any friends over the fact that your dad was a retired cop or, or your stance on, on your view of policing? Did, did that have a negative impact on your relationships with some folks? A couple, um, but only one good friend did I lose. The rest I would have called more of acquaintances, and I didn't really bat an eye. And, you know, Brent and I, we, we, we have this discussion offline a lot. It seems that we have become a society where people are incapable of disagreeing and maintaining a relationship, being able mm -hmm. to speak about it and have that type of discourse. So it seems like that what, what you've undertaken is an attempt to have that discourse 
because we desperately need it. Absolutely. I was, I was listening to uh, a radio broadcast, Ramaswamy, the, the guy who's running for president. Uh, he was giving a speech to someone, and, and somebody stood up, a woman stood up and was yelling about, you know, the, the right to have an abortion and so on and so forth. And she was loud and kind of disruptive, but he didn't have her thrown out. He asked her to come up to the stage so they could have an exchange of ideas and, and discuss it. And at the end of it, she was calm, and they both agreed to disagree. That's what America's about. It's supposed to be. That's what it always was. When I'm, I'm, I'm in my seventh decade. <laughs> okay, well, I wasn't a math major. Stand by for a second. Let me count that out. There. <laughs> uh, yeah, well into my seventh decade. But anyway, <laughs> I think it's 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 more or less become you have to see things from my point of view and agree with my point of view instead. Or, of, or, you're, or you're canceled. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I agree with Mike and I disagree on, on several topics, but we were able to talk things out. And we oftentimes will walk away saying, I don't agree, but I still love the guy. You know, it's just how I want our society to be. That's how it should be. That's how it always. Well, I can't say it always was. That's the aspiration. That That's the goal of America, I believe. Hey, well, one of the things that I really enjoy are those discourses where you find out areas that you agree that you didn't know about. Like, uh, I have to throw this out here. Brent and our, our executive producer, Aaron, they run another podcast called Crossing the Streams. And it's a music podcast. And I found out that Brent and I both actually enjoy the music of Celine Dion. Preach. Just another, it's just another unifying thing, but we never would have found if we weren't sitting and talking about this. I was speaking at ILEADA this past year, and one of the things that, that I was asked about was, what are you doing to broaden your, your perspective? And, and I've made a real effort over the past year to try and seek out things, topics that I'm interested in, but I research them from the perspective that I, I disagree from. And, and I found that, hey, you know, I may not agree with everything on the other side, but I may say, you know what? I think that one right there, that might be worthwhile in checking out. And, but mm-hmm. it can't come about if we're unwilling to listen to each other. Exactly. Yeah. And I will say I have. So while I lost several acquaintances and one friend, I have had some good conversations around the topic. And I I do have some people in my circle who don't necessarily agree with me completely or, you know, love police. They see the benefits in funding the police. They see the benefits in supporting the police and they see it from a perspective that's more or less you know, if we can support them, then they can show up better for their job. And there will be, you know, more positive experiences, hopefully more positive experiences portrayed in the in the news or in the media. One, one of our previous guests was a, a, a retired Kansas City police officer, Chip Huth, and he does some work now with the Arbinger Institute. And, and their basic premise is, is, is that we need to see people as people, not as objects. And, and, mm-hmm. and I couldn't agree more. And in fact, in, in classes I teach, as I said, listen, if you want to be safer as a police officer, see people as people. Because mm-hmm. if you see them as objects, you see them as less than, and your mind automatically drops your, your preparedness state. So it's, exactly. a, it's an officer safety thing. On the flip side of that, if your parent is a police officer, it's much easier to see police officers as people rather than as objects. And a lot of folks in society, I think, are struggling right now with seeing Police and not just police, a, a lot of authority figures as people rather than as objects. And it's negatively impacting society. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's uh, we talked about 
the culture of a police officer being, you know, kind of isolated from community, you know, they become part of their own kind of subculture. I was 31 when I got on the job. I, I had then and I have now the same friends I had as when I was six years old. Wow. I did not go into that rabbit hole of being only a cop, you know, going out after the, after four to 12 or after, you know, for a couple of drinks. You know, I didn't fall into that. That's the divorce that has to happen for police. They have to get out of that role. Once they put, put that uniform away into the, into the locker, they're no longer a cop. Although they're still going to respond if they see something, right. but they don't have, shouldn't have that cop mentality at that time. Now they have to go home, take take the kid to you know, the little league, the, the the daughter to dance or modeling, modeling, <laughs> uh, and that's what they have to do, and take the wife out to dinner. I mean, if they if they don't do that, they're damaging themselves and on their relationship. Do- doctors don't just hang out with doctors. You know, they, they, they go home and, and they, they hang around with people from other walks of life. You know, again, right. if, if somebody falls out, they're go, they're going to do something to help it, just like a police officer would. Yeah. But, but they're, they're not looking for somebody to fall out. Right. And I think a lot of police officers, they don't really have off duty time because they're constantly looking for somebody to do something wrong. Mm-hmm. And I think I even said that in one of our previous episodes, I said, how do you take that wisdom that you have? of being a 30-year officer and implant that into the mind of a 20-year-old. And it's, you you can't. Sometimes it just takes that experience of, of life to learn those lessons, I guess. I think you're right. It does take the experience on the street. It takes the experience in life. I mean, there were times that I, I taught at the Philadelphia Police Academy, and I tried to import those, you know, those ideas into the minds of these young people. Did it work? Who knows? Yeah, my family's experienced some pretty serious tragedies. Uh, my oldest nephew was gunned down uh, as a, uh, he he was actually one year old in the police department. He was twenty one years old, right? Twenty one. Uh, he had stopped a stolen car. The guy jumped out of the stolen car, jumped onto the police car before Danny could even get out of the car, and fired fifteen rounds into the car. One of them hit him in the head, and that was thirty uh, thirty one thirty two years ago. So we've had some tragedies. But we've dealt with them as a family and as 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 one. Again, it's a sign of me getting older. But recently, there was the young female officer up in Vermont that was killed in a lot of duty. Today. Oh my goodness! She's Nineteen years old. Nineteen years old, and it, I, I I had to stop looking at it because it was just wrenching at my gut. Yeah, Nineteen years old hadn't even been to the police academy yet. No. No, she was like a part-time recruit, you know. Waiting to go to the police academy. Yeah, yes. It's just like my oldest brothers joined the police department in Philadelphia at 19. Now, they don't allow that anymore, but back in 1966, they did. You know, he was just a kid with pimples. I mean, you know, Jesus. And he's carrying a gun bigger than him. It's crazy. Now, now, Catherine, I, I'm going to share a little story here with you. Uh, my grandfather was a Georgia State Patrolman for 30 years. And so I love talking to my mom about her experiences as the daughter of a police officer. Now, granted, at the time, she was living in a much smaller city than Philadelphia. She was in a little town down in Georgia. Uh, but she said, for the love of everything that's good and right, I couldn't do anything without my dad hearing about it. It's, it's like the entire town was a bunch of snitches. <laughs> Apparently, her and her friend, they, they got a hold of some cigarettes or something like that. 
And it's like before, before it's even done, they're showing up. It. It's like, did did you ever have that happen with you? Where it's like you're trying to get it, and don't don't go into specifics that he doesn't know yet. Okay, but where it's like, man, if Dad finds out about this, uh, things are going to turn bad. Um. No. no, I mean, one, I, one, that was a delayed yeah. note. So there's, there's got to be a story. That was yeah. a protective did, did, note. Did, yeah, did, 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 did you have siblings. Yes. Okay, uh, just whatever you say here, just lay it on one of them. I'll know it's you, but just lay it on one of them. <laughs> well, so growing up in Philadelphia, it's such a big city. I don't think it ever would have gotten back to him. But I also was a really boring, really well-behaved child. So. I don't know. Maybe you should interview one of my siblings. You won't be able to get an answer. <laughs> get a better story, huh? <laughs> but you know, it's 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 an interesting thing to me. And Brent, I think, has seen it. How we've noticed that there tends to be a legacy of public service in a lot of uh, a lot of families that we have on here. One of the things that worries me are the number of cops who now, when they're interviewed, would say, "If my kid wanted to be a cop, I'd say." Not a chance in the pits of Hades would I want that to happen. No. No, he's no. always said ever since we were little, we weren't we weren't no. to be cops. No. Never. No. Katie went through the civilian police academy in New York. And Katie's all five foot tall, pushing it. You're standing uh, up right now then. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I was okay with the the civilian police academy to learn the experience, to see the shoot don't shoot experience and all that. I was okay with that. But that's where it stopped. Our, our son, Michael, I think he was inclined to want to be a cop. But for by, by God's grace, he's colorblind. Uh. He couldn't pass the test. He's a nurse now at, at a local trauma center. He's doing great. And her oldest daughter, she never she never even thought about being a cop. She was a little bit more of a renegade. That's the one I should interview then. What you're saying. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> Based on what... Um, the career that you've had and the interactions that you've talked about, it sounds like that there wasn't a lot of change between who you were as a cop. And then once you retired, Catherine, you didn't notice a difference once you retired, like things like a, a shroud came down. He was just the same person. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would say that that based, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I don't have any scientific evidence, but is that the norm in policing is that people can find that balance or is it the opposite of that? And how did you, what are you finding in the community that you're involved in? I mean, I would say most of the time it's the opposite. I think it really goes back to that idea that he had an identity before he became a cop. So his whole identity wasn't wrapped up in this career. So when he retired, it wasn't like I have no identity now. I mean, he also retired and then went on to work in a similar profession. But I think what a lot of people kind of struggle with that I'm seeing is once they retire, they don't know what to do because all they know is policing. All they know is being a hero and saving and and doing that kind of thing. And once they retire, it's kind of like, well, what now? I don't, I don't have civilian skills. I can't just go and start pushing paper after, you know, having this incredible career. We've talked about the book several times on our podcast, Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement by Dr. Kevin Gilmartin. You know, for anybody that's listening out there that uh, you're in law enforcement, you have family in law enforcement, you're thinking about doing it, whatever. It's a fantastic book because I think you described it perfectly right there. It's not what I do. It's who I am. And if I if I cease to be that police officer, it's almost like I cease to exist. And, yeah. and uh, yeah. you, you, Michael, I'll talk to you for a second. Remember Bear Bryant? Sure. It's like months after he retired, he died. 
And it's like his, his entire life was wrapped up into being the, this college football coach. And you see mm-hmm. that so often in law enforcement. And it, and I get it. It's so hard because what, what law enforcement does is noble and is valuable. And I mean, it has tremendous meaning, but it can't be everything. Correct. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it, it's a job. As noble as it is and as difficult and incredible as it is and all the lives you're saving, it's still, you know, a job. Now, you you run a, the podcast that you do and also the Courageous Ones website that you're doing, the community that you're involved in. How are you able to uh, navigate through this topic with people who have a hard time with it and that say, this is my identity and I, they have a hard time kind of uh, shredding that off of their, their being? Um, you know, I think it's just a lot of open dialogue. Um, there are some people who struggle with it and might take a little extra time. And, you know, I'm not a police officer, so I try to be very sensitive and very forward with that concept that I'm not a police officer and I've, I've never been in their shoes. So, you know, if they're coming to me, if they're inquiring about the community, then they want to find a way to figure out how they can get to the point where they they recognize who they are outside of the job and who they are once they retire on, on the other side of things. And so, you know, if they're open to it, then we can have a great conversation and or I can, you know, point them in the direction of some resources who can kind of help them even further. Because I guess with a lot of times, it's much easier to do that when someone's 21 rather than they're 61, you know, when they have to learn on the back backside of things. You know, it's it's difficult for police, for a lot of people, but for police in general, to uh, accept or or admit weakness. And if there can be an exchange of information or a dialogue between police officers who have these kinds of doubts and issues, and that's what I think Kate is is trying to uh, instigate here, is to try to get that dialogue going so that everybody knows that there are, you know, the challenges that they face are all pretty much the same challenges, but... Also, so are the same responses to those challenges. And showing showing insulation is not necessarily a weakness, or rather, it is a weakness. I should say. You know, Catherine, it's it's almost like because I love the thin blue line. I love the the concept of you know standing between a society and in chaos. But but I think that as a profession, many times we have separated ourselves from everybody. Not just the bad guys, but also the good folks. And, mm-hmm. and it's like it's us against the world to our own detriment. And, and it sounds like what, what you're trying to be is that bridge between the good people mm-hmm. and the law enforcement community, uh, because we're both better if we're together rather than separated. Yeah. And I think that also goes back to what you mentioned earlier about how the public is having trouble seeing police officers as human beings. And I think in some cases, police officers experience that too. They, they see themselves as police officers. They have trouble or hesitations about kind of getting in touch with that more human side and, and being more open. And to your point, you know, mingling with the, the average people and, and people who are not on the police force and who might not know what they're going through. And yeah, what I really want to do is sort of open up to my dad's point, open up that dialogue that, you know, you might not want to go out drinking after work. Maybe you want to go home. Maybe you want to know how to decompress. Maybe you don't want to struggle with the things you're seeing and you don't want to cope with it, you know, with alcohol. 
maybe you feel uncomfortable expressing that because you're the only one in your department who feels like that, or you think you're the only one in your department who thinks like that. Um, so really just giving permission for these people to see and know and seek out a way to, to cope and to be present at home and to really open their arms and their hearts to their families and their loved ones. And still be effective as police officers. Yeah, yes. exactly. It's not an either or choice. It's, it's an and. Yeah. Yeah. Michael, you know, back in the day, we, we talked about choir practice. I mean, you know, the, yeah. you, you talked about POBs, you know, you the parking lot beers. Yeah. But, but participating in that, though, what was often what was lost was the quality of the time that you spent with your family and, and, and the worst shift were afternoon shifters. You know, you go and you work a, a three to 11 or, or, or four to midnight and it's like, well, the family's at home They're They're already in bed anyway. I might as well go out drinking, but, but then you don't get up as early the next day. Or if you do get up, you're, you're, you're hung over and, and you're tired. And so the quality of time that you have with a family is negatively impacted and it becomes the way that you live. It's a terrible, terrible way to live. But just asking, so if you don't participate in those uh, types of activities with your uh, brothers and sisters in the uniform, are you looked at as an outsider then? You don't have that, that same kind of bonding experience and you're foregoing that for time with the family maybe? I, I'm just curious there. No, I, I, in, in five years in patrol, I think I went to two post four to 12 parties, two. Uh, neither one did I enjoy. Um, so I blew it off every time. Even as a, as a supervisor, I blew off most of the post, you know, post shift forays. Was I ever seen as an, an outsider? No, not at all. Because when I was at work, I was at work. I was in, fully engaged with everybody there. I was, I was your backup. I was your supervisor. I was your helper. I was your mentor. If you want to be insulated and, and unto yourself, well, that's going to bleed over into your actual, actual shift. And then you will be named. Yes. I'm amazed the number of times when cops that have lived that lifestyle where, where they've gone, you know, they're all about hanging out and having the drinking parties and stuff like that. And then, you know, somebody starts talking to them, hey, you really need to engage and, and, and be involved with people who aren't cops. And when you watch them in those situations, it's like a, a junior high dance. You know, everybody's awkward. No, not nobody's wanting to look at each other. You know, you don't know how to start the conversation or whatever. If we're honest with each other as a profession, if you ask anybody, hey, where do you want to be in 20 years? What do they say? I want to be retired. But yet we, we, are, we are infinitely unprepared for retirement financially, which is a whole different podcast. Okay, yeah, for sure. But but the other piece is we're, we're not prepared socially. For retirement, because once you're out the door, you're out the door and and those are the people that you're left with. And and I think that that we need that bridge so that we can be healthier both during our career and post the career. Yeah. And I mean, whatever it was my dad did, he's got his group of childhood friends, all of whom were at my wedding at my recent wedding. He's got, you know, several of his police friends or the people who worked for him that he's still close with and still has active relationships with. And he has a really great relationship with his entire immediate family. So like I've said before, he's he is why I know that it's possible 
And I want to be able to let other people know that it's possible because now here he is retired and he still has everything. And it sounds like you're doing a good job of that through your your work and your the website and the community that you're in. Can you talk a little bit about that in case folks aren't aware of it? They want to learn more because it sounds like you're providing a good a space for those people and resources as well. Yeah. So um, I actually I just started hosting events, too. So I had my first event on this past Sunday for law enforcement couples. So I invited both the officer and their spouse to attend so that they could kind of, again, learn about these topics and how they can kind of navigate these things together. Because if the law enforcement officer goes out and embarks on this journey by his or herself, it's not going to work if he's if he's got a partner. So I, I invited them to come together so that they could kind of learn these tips and these tactics and these skills together so that they could implement them at home together. So I, I have been, I just hosted my first in-person event. Um, in August, I'm going to be hosting a Zoom event about finances. So Michael, to your point, um, it's going to be all about how to manage your finances as a law enforcement household. And there's more events to come. I really want to Again, bring these people together who want more for themselves. They want to be effective cops. They want to have a great career, but they also want to live beyond their career. They want to enjoy life after they retire. They want to know how to enjoy life after they retire. And they want to recognize who they are and who their family is when they're on the other side of things. So I will be hosting more events in the future to bring these people together so that they know that they're not alone. They know that there are other cops in their shoes who they can talk to about these things. And together they can maybe support one another and and find strength in that so that, you know, the same way there's culture and camaraderie in that choir practice in the parking lots, there's camaraderie and culture in this more healthy dynamic of of building relationships and and improving their quality of life. You know, the challenges that uh, were recognized, Katie, uh, we saw this at the event today, you know, with the, the shrinking police force and the, the ever-increasing demand on police forces is really creating a very stressful situation for families. And I don't know quite how to deal with that other than to recognize it. And that's we have to talk about that. And the families have to talk about recognizing the, the need to do this, but also the need to deal with it and accept it to some extent. You can't just walk away. Well, Mike, Michael, I, I think that you would agree that the work that you did, especially the work that you did in SBU, was incredibly important work. Uh, I mean, you're, you're, you're working literally to save kids from harm. The, the value and the importance of that work cannot be overstated. But how tragic would it have been if save all those kids and then lose your own in the process? The secret is to be able to do both. And it sounds like you've managed to do that. And Catherine, it sounds like that's what you're trying to help equip others with. Exactly. That's a very good point. Yeah, that's a very good point. So, so many cops, and you would know this, so many cops are working on their third wife. Yep. You know, I've learned what a starter wife is. Yep. I just heard that this year. I've, that's the term I've been, I've been introduced. Well, my wife and I are working on 40 years. Wow. Congratulations. Congratulations. You know, so that whole thing, you know, the, the, the starter wife, you know, second wife, third wife, that's all because of the job and the stresses of the job and the demands of the job. 
divorce becomes part is part is part of the job. It goes right in between the man and the woman. You know, it's like right there. So now that that's the biggest challenge right now, especially now with all the demands upon them. Uh, of course, they're, they're making money, but it's costing a whole. It's coming at a high high price. You know, Michael, it's it's almost like that. You've got to have that divorce as part of your personnel file when you go for promotion. Uh, you know what? If you don't have the divorce in here; it's missing. You don't have enough experience yet. You're not you're not qualified to be a supervisor yet. <laughs> but but you're absolutely correct. And 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 I love the folks that do the job. I really love the people who are doing the job and are coming into this profession right now. Uh, a guy I retired with his his son's in the hiring process. And it looks like he's going to get picked up and get sent to the police academy uh, the end of next month. I've known this kid since he was born, and it excites me to see that happening. But I also know the, the long-term damage that can come about to both him and his family if he doesn't manage it well from the beginning. That's right. And so, Catherine, if you're okay with it, I'm going to make sure that he gets the the, the information that you're talking about. So if somebody did want that information, what's the best place for them to go and find that? Yeah. So my Instagram is probably my most active, which is the LT's daughter just spelled out. Um, my email is also the LT's daughter at gmail.com. I'm also going to be launching a online private community for police officers. I, I launched it a couple of years ago, but I'm going to sort of revamp it and relaunch it at the end of August. So I'm hoping that that can become a hub for these people to kind of communicate with one another. That would be the best way to get in touch with me. And I would I would love to chat with anyone who is kind of looking for these resources. Well, I'm going to ask a favor of you then. Uh, we'll, we'll make sure that we put those things uh, in our show notes so our listeners can go and find that. Brent and I both are somewhat like your your dad and that we, we are becoming forgetful because of the, the years associated with our life. Uh, so as you get closer to the launch, if you would make sure that you reach back out to us so that we can put it out on our social media pages and try to help promote that because I love the folks in this job and, and any resources that they can get that's going to make them better human beings and longer living human beings and healthier human beings, we are all about. Yes, absolutely. I will definitely reach out and let you know. Thank you. And Brent, you know, whenever we have episodes where we talk about the inherent dangers of policing and not the physical dangers, it really does. It reminds me how much these folks deserve recognition for what they do. And I think every time we do one of these episodes and we talk about a topic like this, I think there is someone out there listening right now that in their head they think, I need help with this. Where do I go? And I love that we're able to have the resources such as Catherine on today and Michael talking about his point of view that we're able to send those people in the right direction. So hopefully we can right their ship and get them on the track where they need to be. Absolutely. Catherine is, is someone who reached out to us. I was either, uh, I think it was Instagram or Facebook through messages. And she said, you know, hey, here's an idea that I, I haven't heard you guys talk about before. And we always welcome that. So thank you, uh, Catherine, for doing that and suggesting this. Something we definitely wanted to delve into. And you can find us. You can message us. If you've got an idea that you'd like to explore more, uh, that's at Between the Lines of VirtualAcademy.com. And we'll have all of your information, Catherine, up there on our website when this episode comes out. Thank you guys both for taking time today to, to speak openly and honestly about your situations and hopefully how we can help benefit others. Yeah, thank you, great. guys. Great. Thank you very much. It was a great opportunity. Remember, next week, we're going to explore this topic a little further. We're again going to have two guests with a loved one in law enforcement. 
A little bit of a caveat this time around, though. The daughter of our very own Mike Warren is going to be with us. And not only that, we get to hear from Mike's mom, who's going to bring a unique perspective about having a son and a father that served in the law enforcement profession. You'll want to join us again next week for another look at the law enforcement family right here on Between the Lines with Virtual Academy.